Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Stephanie Swan, and I'm the children's pastor here. If this is your first time here, we're so happy that you've decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. All right. Morning. Hi, Donna. How are we doing today? Tara's good. Is that you, Tara? Did I hear you? Yeah. I can always hear Tara. I can hear Tara from the front row all the way to the back row of a funeral full of uh, Church of Christ folk this, this week. Yeah, I can hear Tara. Hi, how are you? It's good to see you. Why is everybody so quiet, Don? Help me out. It's the jacket. It's the $16 jacket from Forever 21, if you must know that everybody keeps talking about <laughs> I need to do a little holiday shopping with y'all. Just follow me to the mall. Y'all, you guys, it's not about brands. It's about just knowing how it all goes together. Also, I'm doing my little half Kanye, half Kundalini all white today. <laughs> just felt like that would be important today. I can't forget this chair. So the notes go like this. Hi, morning, one and all. Jason Ashley Moore is here. I'm the lead pastor of ANC. Yesterday morning at about 5 a.m. when I first walked up on the scene of the fire we had over here in building A, The investigator asked me who I was. I said, hi, my name is Jason Ashley Morris. I'm the lead pastor here. And he looked at me. (laughs) He looked at me as if to say, come on, kid, where's your dad? I was flattered. It must have been the, the, the Hollister hoodie and the ball cap and the pajama pants. I don't really know what it was. But we had a fire to sort out, so that flattery didn't last very long. Anyway, thank God for... Uh, an early report and good response. By the time I got here, there were probably seven engines here, maybe. I don't know, maybe a few fewer, but uh, we averted a massive crisis. We are not far. This thing goes to the ground and we're out for 18 months. And so anyhow, God is good, even at 5 a.m. Ironically, I got a call from everyone's boss. We all, Nathan, tell me if I'm wrong. Nathan back there. Everyone in this room works for Todd Metter whether you know it or not. He's the boss of the planet. From London, he calls and wakes me up and says, you need to get to the OFR Center, there's a fire. I'm like, how in the world do you know in London from the ring camera? But he did, so anyway, we're all gonna be fine. The planet will be fine because Dolly Parton is still recording music and Todd Metter's in charge. So there you go. So today is the last part of, the, of a super random and sometimes odd little collection of sermons that we entitled, Wouldn't It Be Nice If, many weeks ago, that was the title that occurred to us. It never really had a strong, coherent theme other than what's kind of embedded in the title itself, which is, if you're paying close attention, it's an invitation to imagine our faith in some fresh new ways. Well, we're kind of always doing that around here anyway, but wouldn't it be nice is another way of saying, wouldn't it be cool if we could take some of the weird stuff away from how we do faith? It's a way of asking the collective question as a people. What things need to change or adapt or morph or molt? What things can we update and upgrade? What things might we undo or unlearn so that our faith can be built in our lives on something other than what we inherited, right? On something that makes more sense for our current context. It's a kind of central question for most of us around here. For some of us, it's the framework with which we approach life every day. What things do we need to keep and what things can we say? Wouldn't it be nice if we just didn't have to hold on to that? Anybody go into your closets this time of year with that attitude? Yeah. And we're going to get to that in a second. We're going to get to the final installment of, of this series in a few minutes. But before we do, I wanted to take a couple of minutes and just open the floor and open the mic and just name some of what we're thankful for this year. I can't see myself doing a whole sermon on an American holiday, and by American I mean the latest of the latecomers to come to America, 
That's who celebrates Thanksgiving. I can't see myself doing that. I'm not really nationalistic in how I think of the pulpit. I'm only a nationalist when it comes to the Olympics, sorry. But giving thanks is such an important part of healthy spirituality. I've studied spirituality from every angle or from many angles. Cultivating a mindset of constant gratitude is essential to a good life and it does matter where you start and where you end up. Thankfulness is important as it turns out. All the mystics have said so much. So before we go any further, thinking about Thanksgiving, what are we thankful for? Let's just discuss this. You can bring the house lights back up. And wait for the mic so that the out-of-town crowd can hear. What are some of the things you're thankful for this year? Strong support systems. Friends, family, ready there to catch you when you need it. Yeah. Who else? Feel free to panic. <laughs> panic at the disco. That's a great beer in town. Did you know that? Seriously. Meanwhile. Is it meanwhile? Or is it St. Elmo's, Panic at the Disco? I'm talking. Okay. <laughs> Downtown Richard Brown has the microphone, everyone. I am so thankful for the community that is coming together around the middle schoolers here at ANC. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I think it started at the beach trip that Melinda, you know, just poured so much into. Mm -hmm. But it is creating these, like, ripples of friendship that are like hugely impacting my life and my kids so much. So Yay. super thankful for that. Shout out Melinda. Yep. We'll have to relay that word later to her. Yeah. What are we thankful for this year? How's it going guys? Uh, this is my second time here. Wow. Uh, my name's Isaiah. So uh, this year I am thankful for weakness um, and exposing vulnerability. So that's something that I've learned this year and um, that exposure to those feelings that are so hard to come by, especially um, for men in their 20s, <laughs> it's, it's really it's not easy. So I'm thankful for um, the weakness that I've uh, felt this year. Good, good. So. Turns out men in their 20s have feelings too. Is this a news alert for any of you? Despite what our culture taught us we were allowed to feel, we actually do have feelings. Where's my coffee? Where'd it go? Don't move. Got it, got it. What else? What else are we thankful for? Hey, I'm Danny, and uh, first hi. time here, but hi. it's a great experience so far, and I'm <laughs> delighted to potentially find a new church home, especially one with a rock and little five-piece combo like that. With a what? Rock and little five-piece combo. <laughs> yep. Fantastic. Yes. Hi, I'm Laura. Um, I would say resilience. Mm. It was laid off over a year ago, and this has been a really, really trying season of trying to find footing in mm. mid-career and mid-life and learning new ways to be resilient after mm. being rejected hundreds of times for jobs. So it, it's required of me to dig deeper into a new sort of faith mm. uh, in myself and, yep. and in the divine timing of things. So I'm grateful for that. Some of you have already turned this corner, but I think on the list of things that we might name that we're thankful for, it's not all good or easy things. There's some hard things too, right? So broaden out that lane. Now you're going to say something super easy, aren't you, Donald? Bring it, Donald Allen. Uh, at the risk of being overly transparent, uh, one day at a time, mm -hmm. every single day, today included, I am grateful mm -hmm. for the gift of sobriety. Yes. Which has had a miraculous impact on my life and those connected to me. So. Yeah. 
Don might be the saintliest of saints to sit on the second row and hear his pastor crack jokes about beer every Sunday. I'm proud of your sobriety, Don. I know your story. It's a great story. What else? Who else? Hi, I'm Kim. I'm Hi, thankful Kim. for the coexistence of grief and joy mm. and loss and community and um, things that get harder but get richer at the same time. Y'all are so deep, it's squeaky. Do you remember those, So Deep They Squeak, Deep Thoughts by Jack Handy from Saturday Night Live? Anybody have those? Yes. We, we, some of us are old enough. This is brilliant. This is good. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, I was raising my hand for Jack Handy. Yeah, if you scratch, I, I if you scratch an itch right now, you're getting a microphone, so everybody be real still. Yeah. You know, I would say um, thankful for friends. Mm. And I think of old friends, that's like five years since we started ANC old. But then mm. we have made some just amazing new contacts in just the last... Um, few weeks mm-hmm. right here and uh, just a few others that I just am so grateful for. Good. Have we hit that fatigue level? Introverts are terrified. <laughs> They're like, please don't come near me. Did anybody else go to Cirque du Soleil once in your life and you sat too close to the front and you were absolutely terrified they were going to pull you on stage? That was me. Some of you are dealing with those waves. Literally sat right on the front and I could not look harder at my shoes. I was just they were going to make a contortionist out of me, but they never did, so we're good. Brian? Yeah, I was just going to say community in general, mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's just like going to the coffee shop and the barista that I met that I now have my cell phone I keep in touch with, or the owner of the record store I go to, yeah. people that check in on me, that, that love me um, just as much as my friends and my family do. Yeah. I think that's a testament to Austin and how great this city is. Um, just by meeting people, sharing your story, mm-hmm. that great things come our way. That's such a good point. Some of my great friends in Austin are not from this church. Be real sad. No, no. There are people from radio. I've been going there for almost 10 years. Some of my great friends I've met just around a common taste for Stumptown coffee. Not complicated. Yeah. Joy? Uh, This is so specific, but it's fresh on my mind after having them here. Uh, My two eldest children basically didn't speak for two years, and Mm -hmm. they're now such close friends. We had such an amazing Thanksgiving, so um, I guess repaired relationships. I'm super thankful for that. Yeah. All right. We can go all day here. One more. Did you, did you have your hand up or were you scratching? She was not. She did not have her hand up. Do you remember the book in the New Testament, the book of James? Uh-oh. Go. Go ahead. Um, I'm thankful for love, just love and friendships and relationships, and I'm thankful for therapy this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many therapists in the room are like, I'm thankful for clients this year? <laughs> Do you remember that little epistle in the New Testament we call the book of James encourages us to consider even the hard and the challenging things as pure joy because somehow that's how we grow. I think often of the amount of times I've heard people literally pray against the hand of God because the thing that delivers the growth they're begging for is what they're cursing with their prayers. So as we open our lives to the goodness and give thanks for those things, it's, it, it, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? And sometimes those things sit in such tight proximity, we can't, really, we can't really cut between the sadness and the joy. Sometimes they're so tight. Some of the things that I'm especially thankful for this year, my daughters, oh, if you guys knew, some of you do know my daughters. I've never had a closer relationship with them as I do now, never. They are fierce and whimsical and bright and dedicated and they are built for true love and they spend money like nobody's business. (laughs) I adore them each in unique and ever-expanding ways. They are my joy this year. 
I'm grateful for a loving congregation and a trusting board and staff who have walked with me to the ragged edge and back this year. They never once questioned my character, or at least they never did it around me or my capacity to lead, even as my life fell completely apart. I'm so thankful for this church and who leads it. I'm grateful for Stan and for Rabbi Neil, who today is his birthday, so send love his way, uh, who have uniquely, and for whatever reason, those two men have pastored me really well during the darkest season of my life. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I came through a very unwanted and, and uh, difficult divorce this last year. Uh, and I'm grateful for my beloved friends and family who've carried all of their own weight during a hard year, and some of mine, actually, this, this year, too. I'm grateful for that. I'm also thankful for open and inquisitive spaces like ANC where we can ask hard questions, where I never get Monday morning calls from bishops or DSs telling me to walk it back. I'm grateful for the space that we've created here, where we can ask hard questions of an ancient faith and an ancient and sometimes odd text. I'm grateful that we've created a space together where we can ask those questions with no shame and no guilt ever, ever, not from me. Because we are open and inquisitive around here, I don't have to open the Bible on a Monday and decide what does God say next Sunday or what does the passage say next Sunday. I can preach from what's moving my heart and what's moving my soul. I get to ask the text a different question and it's this Monday morning question. What does this mean to me now? How can I see myself in this material today? What's happening in my heart in the shadow of these old and often odd stories right at this moment? I'm grateful that I'm allowed to ask that question instead of what does the Bible say to this? The Bible doesn't say anything, friends, it reads, right? And that's what I do every week. Some of you know how my week sort of rolls and you know exactly where to find me. If you're smart, and I'm so predictable, it's, it's, it's actually quite insane. I turn in the same receipts to the, for the same amount on separate dates almost at the same time and the accountant is always like, wait, hang on, this is double receipted. I'm like, nope, that was Tuesday, that was Wednesday, identical, different day, right? But this is how my week goes, and that means that sometimes what the scriptures speak to me feels like it's not the same as what it might be speaking to you. Sometimes what I receive in that space is for the community, and sometimes those words and ideas and thoughts are really actually just for my own self-transformation. And it's not always easy to know the difference, to be honest. Hopefully it's always a little bit of both, some for you and some for me. Well, this week, being a holiday week, the comfort felt like it was mostly for my own personal consumption. Anybody else have triggers buried all around holidays? I've made a few important relationship decisions in my personal life in the last few weeks that have clarified some things for me in very good ways, and the comfort that I found just below the surface of a noisy and, ac and super active week with all the triggers of a Thanksgiving, it seemed like all of those comforts were for me, mostly. Here's what I mean. And I'm only sharing this with you because some of you have made it a point to tell me recently that you find particularly encouraging when I tell you what's actually going on in my personal life. And so I don't always like, in fact, I rarely like to go there because I'm afraid that the balance won't be right, that someone's gonna feel overexposed, and so I mostly resist. But I will tell you this, I'll go there for this moment, just to normalize what sometimes a very deep and triggery and deeply personal week can be for all of us. Whenever I would sit down to write a sermon this week, I would feel compelled instead to just get quiet in my own soul and attune myself to myself. There was a calm and a beauty and an order to my inner landscape this week, which is super amazing and super rare, that I don't always feel, just to be honest. There was clarity and there was calm, even confidence, I would say, seemed available. So I cultivated that all week. I listened to the same playlist on Spotify. If you need it, text me later, I'll give it to you. And I just stayed really, really still. 
My chair was asking me this morning, really, how many hours are you going to sit here this week, right? My reading chair. It was still for my standards anyway. I know I still have move around a lot, but words just didn't feel important is what I'm trying to say. Bible verses didn't matter. I didn't really care. I just sat there in total peace with myself, and that's a lovely place to be until Friday morning when your preaching team needs words to build poetry on, in which case now we were tempted to panic but didn't, somehow didn't, tried to remain quiet, and I leaned in instead. Anyway, not every week for me feels like a productive writing week. Some weeks feel like they're mostly just for sitting in a calm center and just breathing. And this was one of those weeks. The words didn't feel very near. What felt especially close to me instead this week was this powerful sensation of growth and development and transformation over time. This was the week that my world burned down exactly two years ago. So much has happened since then, so much good, so much growth, so much transformation. And you see, transformation is really the point of it all, isn't it? Tragically, Christianity has mostly focused on productivity and efficiency over centuries. We spend most of our lifetime trying to please God, building and perfecting creeds and doctrines and theologies that make sure we're doing things right and we miss the point entirely. I don't think there's any ambiguity that I can find around this point in the teachings of Jesus. He was attempting to teach his friends how to engage the world differently as transformed human beings motivated by love. By this, as you know, but this, as you know, is a far harder to achieve than it might seem at first. It's a matter of perspective, it seems. It's a matter of what we focus on primarily. And most religious systems, friends, focus on the things we believe and we say, not on the kinds of people that we're becoming. Jesus knew we would have to change how we thought about God if real transformation were ever to take place. And that became his domain. That's where he was strong as a teacher the transformation of the human heart, and true transformation will always begin with how we think about God. That's what the latter part of the book of Matthew is focused on, and that's where we've been recently. Jesus tells story after story in parable form about the true or the truer or the truest nature of God, and today's little story is no exception. In fact, it might be the most important of them all. This is how Matthew recalls Jesus describing how the kingdom works, who sits at the center of such a kingdom, and what we should be doing while we wait for its full unfolding. And in today's parable, I think you might be astonished to see who sits at the center. So let's read that now. It comes to us from Matthew chapter 25. We'll begin Advent next week, so you're going to feel a, a bit of a gear change, but this, let's take our time with this one here. Matthew 25. Subtitled, The Judgment of the Nations, which of course you can always guarantee the New Testament is going to title the wrong part. They're going to name it the wrong thing. It's going to like Peaceful Meadow neighborhood where we knocked all the trees down and built brick houses. They're going to, that's, I don't know why they do that, but it's not about the judgment of the nations. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, 32, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, now pause. In a shepherding culture, you would need to separate sheep from goats because, of course, the sheep are much more valuable and those would be stowed away so that they would occupy the inside roofed spaces, if that makes sense. That's something a bit lost to us. Separating your Priuses from your Teslas, let's say. Which one gets the carport, guys? Clearly the Prius, right? No. <laughs> Verse 33, and he will put the sheep at his right and the goats at his left, and then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you are Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? Verse 40, and the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, you who are cursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then you will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right, very briefly, let's hear from a couple of you. What are your, what are your reactions and your comments to that? You ready? Lights up. What are your comments about that? How does that land on you? I'm a fly fisherman, y'all. I cannot wait all y'all. Maybe we have no, I'm just realizing what an awkward position this puts you in, Catherine. <laughs> it's like the tip jar person at the, at the Saxon pub. Whoever picks up the tip jar and walks around and puts it in your face. No comments? How, what do you think about this? What, if, what have you been taught about this? How about that? Anyone? Way in the back. Yeah. I really dislike the idea of Jesus being that kind of a judge that would condemn anybody to hell of any sort. Mm. It just really hits me wrong. Same. Let's have a cup of coffee someday, you and I. Yeah. Who else? What else? It's pretty rough stuff, isn't it? Yeah, up here. Molly. Trey finally confessed today that he really hates to run the microphone, so I think we have a permanent new job for Catherine. <laughs> yeah. I would say this is the kind of um, threat that was used to elicit a behavior rather than the condition of the heart um, and the position of, of why you would be motivated to care for someone, but rather doing it in order to secure your position in mm -hmm. the right group. Yeah. Anyone else feel like they need to add something to that? Anybody else just want to give a thumbs up and say that? Yeah, that. Ditto. Yeah. Joy says ditto. Okay. It's pretty austere stuff. Thank you, Catherine. When you read the sort of stuff that I read to help me study and understand biblical passages like this one, the first thing you notice about this parable is that most of the arguments over time have been around three little words in verse 32. And here's what those words are translated in English. All the nations. I mean, just reread it again for us. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his throne of glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Theologians argue about this because, how, because of how we understand those three little words and the implications that are buried there. If Jesus is speaking only to his followers or to the small overlap of Gentiles and Jews already within earshot of his teachings, then I guess we could preserve 
the, the thinking that their cosmovision was right, that there are certain heathen nations that could still be understood as destined to be cursed or destined for eternal damnation. I guess we could understand it that way. Whether or not they served the poor, this could have just been some sort of an internal thing. If Jesus was just speaking to the Jews and Gentiles in Jerusalem, the crowd that was already around him, then perhaps this separation happening between sheep and goats could simply be understood as internal or as some sort of housekeeping, if you will. Maybe this is just about inspiring some of the more lazy ones who were stuck on ideas and less willing to go and serve the poor. Maybe that's what this was. But according to Matthew's recollection, Jesus says, all the nations, which means all the nations, which means that anyone anywhere, technically who is taking care of the sick and the hungry and the thirsty and those who are in prison, anyone anywhere technically could be welcomed into eternal life for looking after such human needs. In other words, anyone anywhere who served the least of these could, at least in theory, receive credit for serving God. You see that? You see why those three words matter? Most theologians are obsessed with determining the boundaries of God's pleasure and love, focusing completely on who gets included and who gets justifiably excluded. And some theologians miss the point altogether while they develop and they master a language that nobody who is actually suffering cares about or understands. Friends, I'm not all that interested in theological brawls anymore. I lived that decade, and I didn't move the needle either. And let's not lose track of the bigger point here. We already know that the scope of the love of God is universal. We already know that there is nothing nationalistic or bounded or limited in any way about the gospel of Jesus. Of course, good news was for all the nations, so let's not get distracted by the sideshow here. Let's stay off the stuffing and get back to the turkey, if you will. Everything Jesus taught was for all people everywhere, except nothing less. What's far more interesting to me here is where the king can be found. Matthew talks a lot about a kingdom, but finally, after all of those other stories about what the kingdom is like, finally we have a story in the book of Matthew about where the king can be found. Jesus often compared this kingdom, this central theme of his teaching to earthly things that anyone could understand and slowly over time a clearer picture hopefully would emerge. A kingdom is like a pearl or like a treasure or could be compared to a net or even to a mustard seed. But where can the king of such a kingdom be found in the real world? And where should we look for such a ruler? Should we gaze into the sky or should we look elsewhere? Should we use telescope or microscope or perhaps both? I think you see my point. This is an odd kingdom to figure out, friend, because we're all running around looking for the power, but nobody can sometimes find the king. Jesus never accepted the title of king, by the way, which is one reason why I believe kingdom is a meager translation of the concept Jesus that actually would have used or what he would have spoke about directly. But even if we rely on what we can reconstruct from the Aramaic and we opt for a circle of mutual empowerment, as I often suggest we do, it still needs somehow a prime initiator. Someone has to start a circle like that. Someone has to invite others into it. Where can that someone be found? Even if they are no are no king by conventional standards. And I think, friend, that's actually what this parable is about, if you ask me. Where to look for whoever is running this kingdom thing? Well, what do you mean, preacher? Check the throne room. Surely that's where you find such a king. Well, it sounds easy enough, but where exactly would we find such a throne room? Are we looking somewhere up in the ether, just out of sight, because we've been there and we found no throne, friends? But don't lose hope. 
Apparently, this ruler, this prime initiator of this circle, this king who hated that title has been eluding detection since the beginning. You see, what do you mean, pastor? What are you talking about? I wonder, did you notice that little detail in our story? Neither the sheep nor the goats had any idea where the ruler was lurking. Did you notice that? Both parties say similar things. When summoned by the king, they say, oh man, we had no idea that was you. And how could they have? What sort of king hides out inside the broken and neglected bodies of suffering people? I mean, I'm no paparazzi, I'm no king hunter myself, but even I know not to look among the least of these for the one who is the most important of all. And that's the problem, isn't it? Structures and institutions and cultural rules and assumptions that determine and decide who and what matters most don't survive at all in the teachings of Jesus. They all fall away now. Any such accolades or kingly honors were cast aside. They were literally unchosen by Jesus when the eternal embodiment of love itself took on flesh in that self-styled son of man form. It came and it hid out inside human brokenness. Now move slow, catch your breath if you must. If you allow this to sink in, friend, it may undo everything you've ever thought about God and life and what matters most. Where is God? Where should we look to find the beginning and the end points of all meaning and purpose and creative energy in us? That's where, especially in those of us who are suffering and most in need. Or better yet, let's make this slightly more personal. Where is God? Where should we look to find the beginning and end points of all meaning and purpose and creative energy in us? That's where. Specifically in the most broken and bruised parts of us. The starving, parched, imprisoned parts of us. You know exactly what parts I'm talking about. I'm talking about the parts that you hide your face from, the ones you ignore and feel ashamed of, the parts you hide from others. Yep, that's where you find God, right there. God was there all along. Think about that for a moment, dear one. Breathe now, think about that. You know what's odd? This is Matthew's only real treatment of the subject of the end times. This is it. And while apocalyptic questions don't dominate our imagination in this century, they did for the people alive when Matthew wrote these words down. It was their obsession. How will the world end? What comes next? When will we see our liberation from our oppressors? These were burning questions on the minds of the people of the first century. We live pretty comfy lives, which means we have vested interests in maintaining this current arrangement of things. We aren't worried about the end of the world. We have a luscious life in this world. But Matthew, decades later, can still recall the urgency with which Jesus taught his friends these lessons. And what was that lesson? What is that answer? Friends, simply that God was here all along. Any return of a king at the end of time will involve us being reminded that this king, this prime initiator, never left. They were here all along, hidden in plain sight, right under our noses, if we could only see with the eyes of God. Friends, the capstone of Matthew's story of the life of his friend Jesus is a reminder that the divine lives inside human suffering. So lay aside for a moment all apocalyptic imagery of devils and angels and eternal damnation juxtaposed by eternal life. Forget about this curse, the obsession of the oppressed people of the first century. This is just a parable. These are metaphors. Metaphors are being used to initiate some new ways of thinking. Listen to the main point. God is among us. 
always among us. And we will all always struggle to see how true that is. This parable isn't about an angry or vengeful God who divides. This is about a God who hides in plain sight. This final thought. Today is Christ the King Sunday, which of course has always felt like the epitome of irony to me, being no king at all. He himself rejected that title at every turn. At least he wasn't a king in any conventional sense of the word. Unless, friend, unless, this is what real authority looks like. There is no other world, dear one, into which God retreats. This is where God can be found, right here, always among us, and always, hear me now, always in need of our care and nurture and attention and always grateful to be found by us where we least expect to find God on the throne that our broken hearts create, on the throne that our suffering bodies build, stone by stone, bone by bone. Right here, right here. Could that be? Is that even possible? Wouldn't it be nice if it was? Wouldn't it be nice? Tell me, friend. Wouldn't it be? I think it is. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you're